Welcome to the Karen Kenny Show. This is the place where we take a no bullshit look at life's little lessons. Here, together, we find the spiritual glory in even the most wicked hard story. This is a journey from fear back to love and how we can find our greatest strength and happiness in some of the most unlikely places. I believe that if you're willing to change your mind, you can totally change your life. So, are you ready to rewrite your story and choose to live free? Let's do this. Hey, you guys, and welcome to the Karen Kenny Show. I am so excited. <laughs> I'm so excited. For today's guest, and I even allotted extra time because I just knew this sucker was probably going to go a little bit long because I have so much enthusiasm and joy for my guest today. Um, so I'm going to tell you a little bit about Marianne C., how I came to know her, and then I'm going to let her tell you a little bit about herself too. So you guys, I have her official bio in front of me. And I can, um, I'm going to read a little bit about it, um, just so you have a, a, you know, a formal, I like to do my job, you know, do my due diligence and give you a professional kind of like introduction. And then I'll move into the personal and how I've come to know Marianne a little bit. But first of all, let me just say, um, hi, Marianne, welcome to the show. <laughs> hi, Karen. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it is my total pleasure. So just bear with me for a few minutes while I, I tell the world about you, okay? <laughs> Thank you. All right, so here's the official bio, you guys. So when Marianne C., and that's S-E-A, you guys, like the ocean, okay? Marianne C. was nine. She wrote her first autobiography entitled Freckles, <laughs> which I just love. <laughs> and she told her readers that she wanted to be a medical missionary. Little did she know that before she could help anyone else, she had to help herself. Amen and hallelujah to that. She was never a healthy child, but her health collapsed completely when she was 27 after she was hit by a car crossing a street in a blizzard. A year later, weighing less than 70 pounds. Wow, I mean, I'm just going to take that in for a minute. A year later, weighing less than 70 pounds, she was labeled permanently and totally disabled by the U.S. government as a result of extreme chemical sensitivity. In order to recover, she had to remove herself completely from the modern world and live in isolation for years at a time. And you guys, we're going to totally dive into that story. During these years, she began to explore the connections between her thoughts, feelings, and her physical body. And she developed her intuition so that she could find and heal content that was held deep within herself. And this is really powerful, that part, you guys, because she had to go first. I often say, like Marianne, like a lot of us, she was her own first client, right? Absolutely. So when she returned to the world, um, she was passionate about sharing with others the power of the mind-body connection and the power of intuition in healing. So she moved to Australia and she taught doctors and nurses in hospitals and in several universities. And she was the first coordinator of the mind-body healing course and the master's in wellness degree program at RMIT University. And now for 25 years, she's worked as an intuitive, calling upon her intuition 
to help others to grow and heal. And her second autobiography, which makes me wicked excited because she's also a writer, you guys, her second autobiography, Love is the Healer, will be published in May or June of 2020. So that suck is coming out soon. <laughs> so I'm so excited. So like, that's the official bio of my beautiful guest. But let's just dive in for a sec. And poor, I always say poor Marianne has to wait while I basically gush over her for a few minutes. So, <laughs> so um, I came to, to know Mary Ann through um, our mutual friend, uh, Meg Haynes. You guys have heard me talk about Meg several times. She's also an intuitive and a healer, and she's lovely. And um, it turns out that Marianne and I have several friends in common. So it was kind of like this spiderweb network of knowing. And so automatically there was so much trust there because she came so highly recommended from um, a few people that, um, that I love and respect. And so um, I came to want to, and I'm really open, Marianne, just so you know. So if, if any part of like the work that we're doing together, it's okay to, it's okay to talk about those things today. Mm -hmm. So many of you may or may not know, but a lot of you who know me know that I've had um, IBS, irritable bowel. My body, I should say, has had IBS symptoms since I was 15. And it's, it's become, it's, it's at a point where in some ways it's so much better. It's like, I've, I'm really close to being healed around it, but it still, still shows up very actively and situationally in my life. And with the work that I'm doing now with podcasts and speaking and doing all these things, I'm being asked to kind of step into the public arena more and more and more. And this is where the IBS can kind of get in the way because my nervous system on some level does not know the difference between um, when I'm excited and when I'm afraid, <laughs> when there's fear and when there's excitement. So I came to Marianne um, asking for help. I've tried so many modalities, you guys, you have no idea. Um, and this show isn't about me, so I'm not going to go into all that. But I just wanted you to have an understanding that I came to Marianne for healing. And here's the thing that I know in the work that I do as a spiritual mentor. I always say mentors are smart enough. Good mentors are smart enough to know that we need mentors. <laughs> Those of us who are helpers are also smart enough to know that we often ourselves need help. So if there's something in my life where I'm bumping up against myself and I don't exactly know the way in and I've tried a lot of different things, at some point I say, okay, it's time to, to, to call upon somebody else's um, guidance and wisdom. And so that's how I came to Marianne. And we've been working together now for a couple of months. And it has just been the most incredible experience. And I have come to um, have such deep gratitude for Marianne, the way that she works, who she is, how she is in the world, her deep compassion, her, her um, standing in the total trust and faith of her gifts. I mean, she, beyond helping me navigate these things, the trauma and stuff of my childhood, because <laughs> unbeknownst to me, I was, there was a lot of trauma in my childhood. And that's a story for another day. But Marianne's been doing a beautiful job of helping me to kind of sift through and sort through some of this stuff and giving me tools to help me to heal myself. So it's just been an incredible journey, you guys. I love her so much. I've come to love her in a deep way in a very short period of time. And one of my things I often talk about, you know, when we talk about like core wounds and stuff like that, you know, I don't have the wounds of I'm unlovable or I'm not worthy. Like those don't register for me, but not feeling safe and not being able to trust are like big things like kind of in my world. So the fact that I've come to trust 
and feel safe with Marianne in such a short period of time. It speaks volumes to me about her character, um, her gifts, her spirit, and the way that she is able to hold sacred space so that another person can be fully revealed and feel safe in that revelation and to know that they're not being judged. So that's a little taste of my love for Marianne. And I just want to dive in and, because as you guys know, this is, this is a show all about spirituality and storytelling. And Marianne has an incredible story. And so I know that part of her story is like, this is one of the biggest challenges she had to face in her life. And I'm always fascinated how people um, are presented with situations and then they're able to navigate them, overcome them. What did you learn from them? So I would love to hear from you, Marianne, if you feel comfortable sharing, like what, what was that biggest challenge? Like, can you tell us a little bit about your personal story and how you came to be doing what you do? Well, first of all, thank you for that glorious introduction. <laughs> very touching, very moving to me. Uh, Karen, I think if someone were to look at my life, they would say the greatest challenge was environmental illness or multiple chemical sensitivity because it requires just about everything you've got to make it through. It's the kind of illness where you know you, you don't get to lie on a bed because you're allergic to a bed. Uh, you don't get to take a shower because you're allergic to the shower. It, it just never stops. You, you just basically have to stay away from everything if you're as severe as I was. But when you ask me what's the greatest challenge, I would say my greatest challenge, and it is still, uh, it's a work in progress, is to find safety or at least stability in my own body on this earth. Yes. And, uh, that's, that's, that's been the greater challenge than environmental illness. But at the same time, of course, they're directly related because in order to find safety in this earth, I actually had to go away from the world, truly, absolutely away, and start at the ground floor. And that ground floor was whether I would let anybody else touch me for real, for real. I don't mean physically touch me, I mean energetically touch me so that I would begin to feel safe. Well, I can just say, I mean, obviously I do not have environmental illness, but man, does that resonate with me, that piece about feeling safe in your body in the world, mm -hmm. um, that I totally on some level get that. <laughs> so can you talk a little bit more about, because I know when I read your bio, it says that, um, you know, the journey kind of, I mean, I believe the journey started much younger with probably with your childhood, but we can jump off maybe at, um, so how does one, you know, end up at 70 pounds and how does one end up with the recognition that I don't feel safe in my body in the world and I'm now um, experiencing the fact that I have this environmental illness and, and how that made you had to like you said, fully step away from the world. Can you give us a little more detail around that? When you ask how does someone discover it, well, the first thing we have to say is they're lucky if they discover it because if they go to a conventionally trained doctor, they will probably be handed pharmaceutical agents to help them with the various symptoms. And in my own case, I went to a doctor after I was recovering from the car accident, and I told him about the various symptoms I had, and he, he told me quite kindly that I needed Valium for a year. And I had just finished my master's degree in social work and had studied pharmacology, and I just knew Valium for a year would make me a Valium addict. 
So I declined his prescription. I, I took it, but I didn't fill it. Yes. So I was very, very, very lucky to fall into the hands of a gastroenterologist who was also uh, a specialist, a trained, board certified in environmental medicine. And uh, she asked me for three hours the most bizarre of questions. <laughs> How do you feel when you polish your nails? And I said, oh, I love that smell. I just love that smell. And she said, how do you feel when you fill your car with petrol? I mean, uh, I have to think America, gasoline. Yes. And uh, she said, I said, oh, I love that smell. Ever since I was a little girl, I put my head out the window. I love that smell. <laughs> oh, I, <laughs> I realized I was sounding like an absolute drug addict to her. <laughs> no, I've never taken a drug, but oh, I love that smell. And I went on and on, and finally she looked at me and she said, Miss Kens, you are hopelessly and exquisitely sensitive to petrochemicals. And I didn't know what the word meant. I never heard the word petrochemicals. Yes. I didn't know what that was. So anyway, long story short, she told me to go, and, and she added, and hopelessly allergic to milk and weed. So she told me to go home, rip up my carpet, throw out all my clothes, unless they were cotton, throw out all my cosmetics, um, quit my job, um, get a different, uh, use baking soda for my toothpaste, use baking soda for deodorant. I mean, the list went on and on. And I came home and I told my neighbor who was waiting there to hear what she said. And I said, she's crazy. She says, my weight loss has to do with uh, my carpet. And she says, I have to start eating asparagus. <laughs> My friend, he just poured himself a gin and tonic. He said, yeah, it does sound a little crazy to me. And I said, she doesn't know what she's talking about, Jack. <laughs> so I didn't do a damn thing she said. I thought she was nuts. <laughs> I mean, you have to understand this was 1975. Nobody even knew the word petrochemicals. Nobody even knew the word pesticide, you know, really. Yes, yes. So, uh, so I have to be forgiven a little bit because it was not in common parlance. You know, nobody talked about petrochemical damage so long story short um three and you're in the, still in the united states at that point correct i was in ann arbor michigan yeah yeah and so, so i didn't do anything she said i thought she was crazy and uh then i went downhill of course and then i uh called her and she put me in a hospital uh and hooked me up to an iv and i just sat there drinking uh, ginger ale and I thought oh just four days of this I'll be fine I'll be fine well you know I came out of the hospital and I wasn't fine and mm -hmm. I went very 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 low to the point I was eating one grain of rice a day and throwing up even when I had that oh. and I called her and she said okay um, and I just went to a hospital for a month I was given my own room big sign on the door that said no one can come in here if you're wearing a deodorant or blah 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 and I just curled up into the fetal position and just hoped to God I survived. And as I got stronger, she started to say things like, you know, you can't go home unless the gas stove is taken out of your house. You can't go home unless you blah, 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 blah. So I was scared, you know, I was really close to death. I saw it. And uh, mm -hmm. the interesting thing was though, and I think your listeners would uh, enjoy hearing this segment, she came to me at one point and she said, now, I have no choice. They're going to make me in a lot of trouble unless I agree to lots of tests and x-rays for you. She said, they're not going to show anything. They're going to show you're in perfect health, even though you're 67 pounds and you can't eat anything. 
So you have to be very uh, gracious and thank the doctors for what they've done, and they're going to tell you you need a psychiatrist. And you thank them, but we will not be seeing a psychiatrist. So sure enough, they came in, they said they were gonna to do tons of tests, they did tons of tests, they came back. Now remember, I'm 67 pounds, I'm curled up in the fetal position, and I'm lucky if I'm eating a tablespoon of a baked potato a day without skin. They waltzed in, they looked at me, they said, we have excellent news for you, there's nothing the matter with you. We're going to be referring you to the hospital psychiatrist. <laughs> I did yes. just what Paula told me, I said, oh, thank you very much for all your help. They went out of the room. I never saw a psychiatrist. Paula said I could go home if the gas stove was taken out and all the other um, requirements were met. And my neighbor did all that for me. And I went home and I gained 10 pounds in five days. Wow. Wow. And so when, so the, the part of the, the story when you were, away from the world for years at a time. Was this, was that after this? Yes. This, so, this was just the very beginning. Yes. And then I was, I was really, uh, you know, a convert at that point. My, my personality is very zealous. You know, if I believe in it, I really believe in it. I tell everybody they have to do it. You know, <laughs> I'm a Sagittarian, you know, I'm preaching all the time. So of course I told everybody in the world, they shouldn't have a gas stove and you, you have to rip up your carpet. Oh my God, I was too much. But anyway, I, <laughs> everything she said you know and uh but it was too late my immune system was too crashed and the minute the um heat went on again even though she had me seal the vents they couldn't be sealed completely or i would have frozen to death in michigan um i went way 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 down and uh eventually without going into every single piece of it eventually ended up in the bubble with nothing except three chairs and a lamp yeah so let's let's like break that down a little bit because I, I often say it's kind of like in my work with you well you'll reflect back something to me about trauma and I just kind of go like I never saw it that way it was just my life and I was just doing what I needed to do right so I didn't uh, uh, assign any any uh, kind of specialness or like oh wow that was traumatic it was just like you just did what you had to do so you can very easily say, oh, when I ended up in the bubble with just like three chairs and, <laughs> and I'm like, okay, but let's break that down for the listener. Like, what does that actually look like? Like, I'm talking, how long were you in the quote unquote bubble? When you say the bubble, it wasn't like we all, those of us of the right age, like I'm 51, uh, we remember the John Travolta special, that show, The Boy in the Plastic Bubble or whatever. So you weren't literally in a bubble, meaning it was hermet, her, like sealed, but you had had to create an environment that was like a bubble where people couldn't come in. So could you just kind of talk about, like literally, what did that look like? Like three chairs, couldn't leave the room. Like, can you just dive into that a little bit? And this is all because of the um, environmental, like, um, is it, I mean, not just sensitivity, like it, it could kill you, right? Well, yeah, I was pretty close, you know, as it was 68 pounds and not able to eat, you know, you're, yes. pushing, <laughs> you know, you're pushing it every day. Um, I couldn't be in a plastic bubble. So that, that would be out of the question. I couldn't be near plastic. Uh, this was a nine by 12 room. It was the only apartment complex that we we could find in Ann Arbor that was electrically heated. That was absolutely critical. Gas or oil heat, I, I absolutely would have died. No question 
about it. And at this point, I was too sick to even go into a hospital. Um, so it, it was crunch time. And my neighbor found me this electrically heated apartment. And he moved me there. The carpet was ripped up. They were kind, very kind to do it. And it was 9 by 12. There was nothing in it. No clothes, no books. I didn't see books for many years. No, oh. no paper. Couldn't be near paper because it's uh, got bleach on it. It was uh, just three chairs, um, one of which was my day chair. I sat on and looked out the window. And uh, you know, I feel tears coming to my eyes. And two more were put together with that one. And that was my bed because I absolutely couldn't be on a mattress. Oh my God, the pain would be far too intense. I had a special cloth called a barrier cloth. It was a very expensive cloth that prevented any smells getting through it. So that barrier cloth went over the three chairs at night. And then I lay down with two old wool blankets. And that was. That was it. I could not take a shower or a bath because it was fiberglass, brand new. I mean, nothing old about it, but brand new fiberglass and I couldn't get near it. I could run into the bathroom for 30 seconds at a time if I held my breath. If I did not hold my breath, I would have pain. I had a phone that was made for me, a wooden phone that a young man made for me. And it was outside my room, and I could reach out and talk to it on it for about 45 seconds before I would react to the wood. But at least I could say hello to somebody and, and have 45 seconds. Oh, my seconds. God. I've and heard this story several times, and it still, it still hits me like the... I don't, I mean, I don't want to... I, I want you to tell your story, so I don't want to make assumptions or place things on you or emotions on you that maybe weren't real, but I can only imagine that, it, that there must have been a sense of loneliness or isolation or just desperation of like that kind of human contact and navigate. I mean, in a way, ultimately, right, it, it turns into this incredible gift, which is, you know, the work that I do when I say your story to your glory, yes. this condition ends up being um, in its own way, this glorious, remarkable thing, because it forced you to go in. So we'll get to that piece. But right now, like I, I hope you guys who are listening are taking in what she's saying. She's talking about being in this tiny room with nothing but like three chairs. <laughs> and, and I just, when I think about that, and how long, like how many years did that how long did that go on for? Well, there were so many different bubble experiences. There, you know, once I got married, there was the bubble of living in a car with three masks on at night. Oh my lord, with raccoons around me. There was the bubble of living in a tiny, tiny, tiny trailer that my husband made for me. It was all we could afford. It was specially made, and my room was six feet by three feet. So that was more challenging because that was literally just lie on my back six feet by three feet and uh, so there were many many different bubbles this one actually was kind of easy because um well it was easy it was easier yes, because yes. we were on the road trying to find some place that did rain many many times we were on the road just trying to find a place that had no rain because i'm very very sensitive to mold and anytime it rained i would go downhill this one had an ease to it because i had a very um 
incredible circle of friends and uh, they kept me alive. They literally kept me alive with their love. And the other thing, it quickly turned into this incredibly exciting journey. I mean, I was all smiles every day when people would come in and I would tell them what I learned that day about this illness. And I'd say, guess what I discovered today? And then we'd talk. And so it was, it wasn't as bleak as you would think. I really was very, very happy being able to start putting the pieces back together again and having friends to support me in that process. Yeah. So you talk about these various bubbles. And so like now actually you live in Portugal because it's like, whether it's the climate, the environment, whatever it has, it, it works for you. And like, we can see now, like you're in a room and there's things behind you and this paper on the wall. So obviously there's been this healing journey, but when you are there pictures. And so when you were in this particular bubble, you couldn't have any outside stuff come in. And is this the place where that tiny piece of carrot was down in the garbage disposal? Is that the same place? No, that was, that was really a rough bubble. That was in Grantham, New Hampshire. And that was, that was really, that, at that point, I thought, I can't keep going. I, I really can't. This is 15 years. I cannot keep doing this. Uh, that was a, a room that had nothing in it. Except, I mean, it sounds, makes my life sound terrible. I've had a wonderful life, I assure you. But that room was really, really bad. That was just a wool blanket under me and a wool blanket on top of me. Nothing else. Oh. And that one, that day, oh God, my poor husband, the, the, the dishwasher disposal was downstairs. This is a two floor open, what do they call it? Open plan house. Open so, concept, yeah. Yeah, so there was no door between the kitchen and the living room and then me upstairs. And a piece of carrot got caught in the dishwasher disposal, but the dishwasher disposal broke. It was a tiny sliver of a carrot, it was nothing. My husband could not dislodge it. And as a result, any piece of food that just sits in a mildly wet environment is going to grow mold. Not visible mold, not green, but it's going to develop mold spores. Now, I was upstairs on the second floor, and I would open the door, walk out, and double over in pain. Oh, my God. I mean, I just, it, it just, my hat, my hat just goes out to you when I think about that. And there's so many things that I want to kind of tie into this. So you're in this room when we're back in the bubble with the three chairs. And I'm sure, um, because this is, well, I shouldn't say I'm sure, perhaps uh, people are asking all the questions that I would have had, which is you were so environmentally sensitive, and yet you were maintaining these relationships and friendships. And I'm sure at some point somebody says, well, how did she get married? And like, how do you have a relationship when this is your current, you know, at that point, your reality? So people, I'm assuming, couldn't just come off the street in their clothes and like come in the room. So how were these friendships like developed? Like how did relationships happen with you being isolated in, in your little bubble? Well, I had the friendships before. So, that, you know, they were given. My doctor had a few patients like me. They weren't nearly as serious as I, but they, they understood EI. And so between my former friends and the new ones, I had a, quite a large circle of people who were interested in helping me. And then the newspaper did an article about me. And then more and more people were calling saying, I'd like to try to make you a bed. And, uh, that, and, and a young man did do that. He made me a massage table so I didn't have to be on these chairs. I, it was a very small massage table, though I had to train myself not to fall over because if I fell over, I'd crash into the concrete floor. I mean, there were just so many things. 
but he made it for me. He scoured the whole countryside and he found 100 year old barn wood and he dried it out. And then he made me a massage table bed that I had this young fellow, other young fellow make me a phone. There was an enormous response to oh. my, my situation. And yes, you are correct. They could not come in off the streets. Many times they had to put a sheet over them. Many times they had to take their clothes off and wrap themselves in a sheet. It just depended on what the exposures were that were on them and whether I started to have pain. It just, it, it, it might, you know, my heart just, like I find myself getting emotional as you're telling this because their dedication and commitment to you, their love for you, and and their willingness to say, well, if I want to see my friend Marianne, these th this is what's necessary. And the fact that so many people wanted to be helpful, I think I think in the in the current state, especially here in the U.S. with um, politics and the corona, all these different things, you know, it's really easy to lose sight of um coming together there's such a divisiveness that i see so that just knowing that like seeing that compassion and humanity it just landed very deeply in me it makes me so happy that you had you know so much love surrounding you at that time and also you know i had no money it was not as if i, I was a 27 year old woman i had just finished my master's degree i had no money and my next door neighbor one day asked me, how are you going to support yourself? And I said, I really don't know. And uh, some friend told me to go to the social security office and uh, get try to get permanent disability. I said, geez, I don't think I'm permanently disabled. I, I didn't want to think like that. You know? sure. I didn't want to think I had some hope, you know? Sure. And so I called up and the lady said, are you blind? And I said, no. And she said, are you quadriplegic? I said, no. And then she asked another question. I forget what that was. I said, no. And then she said, do you have malnutrition? And I went, malnutrition? Wow. Maybe you would think I do if you saw me. And she said, you know, I don't want to make this decision over the phone. I want to see you. I want to see you in person. I said, okay, to myself. When she sees me, she's going to fall over because it was really intense sight. So I got in there and she looked at me and she said, what's the matter with you? And I said, I'm allergic to everything. I can't be near anything and I can't eat anything. And um, it was very touching. She said, okay, how many quarters have you worked? You have to work a number of quarters to get disability. And I was too short. Oh. And I said to her, can you count babysitting? She said, no, we can't count that. I said, well, that's it. And she just looked at me and she said, do you know what? We're gonna count this enough. Don't even send us a doctor's records. Your check will be in the mail this month. It's 293 a month. And I looked at her. I went, $293 a month. I said, thank you. I started crying. And then when I got on the way out, I said, oh my God, now I'm called permanently and totally disabled. This doesn't sound so good. But then I thought of the 293 and I said, I'll take it. I don't care. <laughs> but the problem was the rent was 287. Oh my God. So I had six dollars a month to my name. Oh my God, Mary Ann, there's like so much that you had to overcome. And I want to, I want to dive into, um, I mean, there's so much, I mean, there's so much in the story that like I could keep going, but I think people are getting the gist of the extreme, like the extreme situation. 
And I remember when we were talking, we were first getting to know each other. And I had asked you like, well, how did you come to have the gifts that you have, the work that you do now in the world where you help other people like me, et cetera, et cetera. There's so many, um, so many powerful women and people that like you help. And um, at some point, um, I know in your personal story, you said there was like this breaking point where you were like, enough is enough, either this or this. And then you met a woman who kind of, <laughs> I'm trying to think of the word, like I will say challenged you, oh, yeah, right? Challenged you. So can we talk a little bit about that moment when it was like, so I talk about it like this. I say you can, at some point you got to choose. Am I going to live and figure something out? Am I going to die? Like what's going to happen? So can you talk a little bit about the, the or not even a little, you can talk a lot about those moments, which led to you discovering the gifts that you have that you now use to help other people. Of course, Karen, and I will preface it with a short story about my mother, um, because it's important. I grew up in a home where kindness was extremely important. All of us were encouraged to be, we weren't you know, told we had to be kind. It was just the way we were supposed to, it was the way to live. Yes. We weren't here on this earth just for ourselves. And uh, I woke up this morning thinking of my mother when I was seven or eight years old, asking me, did I want to go to the state nursing home, which was not a place you would wish on anybody back in the 1950s. It was for the poorest of the poor who had nowhere to go and who were very ill and close to death. And she asked me very happily, would I like to go to the state nursing home and sing songs for the people? And I said, oh, I want to go. I want to go sing songs for the people. And when we went in, she said, now, Marianne, some of these people won't look too good. And they may be drooling. And they may drool all over you. She said, it doesn't matter. We can wash your hands after. You touch their hands and you tell them that you're happy to be there with them. And you sing. You sing from your heart. I love singing. So I'd be there, jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. <laughs> a few times she had to say, you don't have to sing that loud. <laughs> I need to tell you that story because <laughs> my whole life was in that sphere of there is something much, much greater than ourselves. Life is not about making our lives perfect. Life is about loving and giving. So I was raised in that milieu. I went to a school that... <laughs> I mean, we had to write at the top of everything we did, we had to write a Latin phrase, if you can believe it, you know, we're eight years old writing Latin, ad majorum dei gloriam, which means to the glory of God. Mm. We were saying that if you do your spelling test and history test just for yourself, that's limited. You do it for the glory of God. In other words, the glory of love, the glory of loving others. Yes. So I was in this milieu my whole life. So I had great visions of myself being a medical missionary. I was just going to change the world. <laughs> and all of a sudden, I'm reduced to this person wearing a mask and you know, just trying to get in the bathroom long enough to wash her face without pain. It was, that was the hard part. Like, I can't do anything for anybody. I can't be kind. I can't help. That was the hard part. But what choice did I have? You know, so I, I plugged along. And, but this was when I was almost 40, and um, I was in that room with the one blanket on the floor, and that was it. I, I just, when I went out in that carrot, I just, I said, I've had enough. So I said this prayer. I said, if you'll find a way to turn this into something that helps people, I'll keep trying to live. 
If you don't, I don't want to keep going. So the next day, of course, life is the same old thing, you know, nothing changed. But I had put that prayer into my psyche. And my husband and I had to make a, make a very, very quick exit from New Hampshire because I was, I was dying on one night and he was frantic. He was absolutely frantic. He didn't know what to do. And uh, he saved my life by calling somebody in Utah that he had heard might be able to help me at a distance. And he called and he begged. He just begged that the man would do something. And the next day I was like a different person. And my husband is very bright and he looked at me and he said, okay, we, we understand now something important. We cannot heal you by avoiding things. We've been avoiding for 15 years and you're still almost dead. We have to take advantage of your sensitivity. This man in Utah who doesn't even know you, never even met you, he sends you some energy, you bounce back. He said, I'm going to learn what this man did and then I'm going to help you get well because I'll know what this man did and I'll do it for you. Oh my gosh. And, and of course, I don't even know what the man did. I said, I don't know what he did. He said, it doesn't matter what he did. Look at you today. Look at you yesterday. He said, can you last through the week if I fly out there and study with him? I said, well, you didn't even ask him if he'll let you study with him. He said, I will convince him that he needs to teach me. Believe me, I'll convince him. I said, okay, go. So off he went and he studied and he came back and they said, now we can get you well. It may take us a couple of years, but we can do it. So long story short, we had to head out of New Hampshire because it was getting moldy. And my doctor told Corey, get her down to New Mexico, get her to the desert. And we got down there and two friends said to me, you need to see the psychic healer. And I said to them, I don't think I need a psychic healer because I've got environmental illness. Of course, I didn't really know what a psychic healer did anyway. Mm -hmm. They were both quite adamant with me. They said, you have to go and see her. Are you promising me? I said, I promise. So I went to see her. I sat down. My husband, Corey, sat next to me. And she looked me right in the eye and said, do you realize you're extraordinarily gifted? And I said, I really don't know what you're talking about. And she said, um, do you understand how sensitive you are? And I rolled my eyes. I just went, oh my God. And my husband quickly said, would you mind not using that word? She doesn't like that word. Everybody tells her that. <laughs> yes. And I went, oh my God, don't say this to me. And then she yelled. She said, you've been given a gift. You could be helping people. And all you're doing is staying sick. And I remembered the prayer. I went, oh. And then I paid attention to her. And she said, do you want to learn how to help people or do you want to stay sick your whole life? She wasn't sweet. And I said, oh, I, I want to learn. I didn't even know what she was telling me to learn. I had no idea what the hell she was talking. I said, oh, I want to learn. I do want to learn. <laughs> Whatever. And she said, come next week at 11 o'clock and bring a photo of someone who's sick. So we got in the car. My husband said, are you sure you want to train in this? And I said, I don't even know what the hell she's talking about. <laughs> and he said, well, to be honest with you, I don't know either. And then I remember, I just said to him, Corey, look at me. I can't be anywhere. I can't be in a building. I can't be near people. There's nothing I can do. I never can make money again. If she has some idea that there's something I can do that doesn't involve a book and a pen and a paper, if she thinks there's something I can do for somebody else, I might as well learn whatever the hell it is. <laughs> That's how it began. <laughs> 
It's so amazing to me that, and first of all, because I am, um, I'm a, I'm a very, I'm direct in the way that I, you know, mentor. So direct teachers always make me laugh, but she was just like, you know, she like, like just cut right through the noise and was like, let's get down to business, Marianne. And how, what a gift, like what a gift to have someone who didn't treat you like as something fragile that could be broken. Like she saw something in you and she was like, time to cut the shit, Mary. <laughs> like, let's go, let's do it. You have something to offer. And it's like, it is like to me, you know, of course in miracles, we talk about how a miracle is a shift in the mind from fear to love. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's the relinquish relinquishment of the ego thought system. Right. And it's like the acceptance of the thought system of spirit. Right. So to me, like, that's what happened. Like she was just like, all right, we're going to, we're going to take this and we're going to shift. And that to me was a miraculous moment. I'm not saying you, I mean, I think it was just a miraculous moment where it was like, here we go. And whatever that, um, I'll call it, um, apprenticeship was when you started to learn. And then I, I think you've said in the past too, that your sweetie, your husband, Corey, is also a very gifted somatic therapist. So like you have so many different skill sets. Like that was kind of the catalyst, I believe, from what you're telling me that kind of launched you into the work that you do now. But since then, it's been multi-layered. Like you have so many things available to you. And so I want to, and we, we can, we, do, you mind, do you mind if I tell you what happened at my no, first No, please do. Session? Please do. I because think everybody you, wants to know. You need to understand how I didn't know what the hell this woman was talking about. <laughs> and I was terrified of her. On top of that, I was standing there almost shaking. My husband had to hold my hand. I was so nervous in front of her. Anyway, I arrive. I just want your listeners to know. I arrive with the photo of my nephew. My mother said he's not well, but nobody knows what the matter is. Of course, as it turned out, he has my problem. He was chemically sensitive. But of course, nobody knew it at the time. He was 10 years old. So I held the photo up. She said, look at the photo and tell me what's the matter with him. <laughs> I looked at the photo and I thought, I don't know what the hell is the matter with him. How the hell do I? I, I remember saying to myself, how the hell do I know what's the matter with him? No doctor knows. How the hell do I know? I didn't say that to her because I thought she'd start screaming. <laughs> I'm keeping this all to myself, thinking, and I'm saying to myself, what have I done? This is crazy. I don't know what she's training me in. I can't even do it anyway. And then I said, um, very politely, I, she wouldn't mind if I said her name. I said, Reva, I really don't know what's the matter with him, hoping she wouldn't scream at me. I said, I really don't know what's the matter with him. She said, open up your chakras and tell me what's the matter with him. And this is the truth. I want your listeners to hear this. I... <laughs> I didn't know where the chakras were. And I was too scared to say to her, where are they? Oh my God. So I just said to myself, I think there's one at the bottom and I think there's one at the top. And if there are any other ones in between, would they all open up right now? That's, that's I'm so scared. And so I said that. And I mean, the spirit, spirit was listening to me. And I picked up the photo and I went, oh, and I held my throat and I held my liver. And, and she said, see, you've been doing it all your life, taking on other people's pain, making yourself sick. Isn't it time you finally help somebody? Whew. 
I'm letting that just settle. Listen, is I, I hope you really heard what she just said, because this is, this is the thing about how I believe we all have intuition. We all have, and now maybe not obviously with your particular gifts or the depth of, of, of your work, because we all, I believe we all kind of get our divine assignment in this lifetime. And this is clearly, <laughs> clearly one of yours, but the, the fact that Again, and I, I just kind of keep making this correlation to, to my work because I've always, I've always said like, you know, Joseph Campbell, he has this great quote and he didn't exactly say it this exact way, although this is the quote he, he um, is famous for. But, you know, he says the dark cave that you fear to enter is where that treasure lies. Mm -hmm. And we've all been given these things. And if we can kind of like sift through the stuff to get to the, to the gold, to get to the treasures that lie there. And what a powerful thing. Will you repeat that one more time? Exactly what she said to you. Uh, You've okay. been making on. I, I noticed all the symptoms. I just want to make sure I have it exactly. And she said, see, I told you, you've been making yourself sick your whole life. Instead, you could be helping people. Yeah. She didn't say it as politely as that, but that yes. was <laughs> Yes. Right. So this is such an incredible moment. And then you realize, like when you said your hands intuitively went to your throat, your liver, and it was like, oh. And what did anything shift inside you at that point? Like what happened? No, nothing. Because to be honest, I was too nervous around her. Yes. You know, she really did yell and I was scared. <laughs> yes. And, yes. And, and I didn't fully understand what she was saying. I was capable of doing you know what i mean all i know is i felt all these symptoms but it took me a while to understand what i could do potentially for someone yes um and then after the training which really to be honest with you it was just three sessions she just told me handed me a photo each time i told her what was the matter with the person and she said okay the end of the, the training's ended so that was the end of it and uh so my husband said, do you want to try to do this to help people? And I said, yeah, I want to try. I mean, I wanted to do something. After all, I said I wanted to be a medical missionary. And here I was just trying to survive every day with a mask on me. I said, well, let me give it a go. See if I can help somebody. So for, well, let's see, until we got to Alice Springs. So about two and a half years, I just worked with friends and friends of friends. I never charged a cent. I just tried to see if I could help people. And over and over, they kept saying, you know me better than I know myself. How did you know this about me? So then I realized I had uh, the capacity to help someone. It's so, well, and I can say for a fact that you do have the capacity to help people because I know firsthand. And that's one of the things you guys who are listening, if you know me, um, well, my friends, some of my listeners might not know this about me. It's like, I know a lot of talented people. You know, I know a lot of people who have services, people who offer things. And um, people will often say to me, um, Hey, you know, will you refer this? Will you refer that? I said, I never refer anybody. I never make a recommendation unless I have tried the service for myself or experienced the place, the person, or the product for myself. So you guys, I would not be having Marianne on the show um, and um, with such delight and encouragement if I haven't firsthand had my own experience. And I always say, like, I have an incredibly deep faith in God 
in love, in source, the divine spirit, whatever you want to call it. I always say, insert your happy word here. Um, but it's not blind faith. It is faith that has been gathered and garnered through firsthand uh, personal, real deal, true blue experience time and again. And so I just know that some of the people that you tend to work with, um, people who like me, right, and like you, <laughs> um, have been feeling, have, have been like cut off from full feeling in their bodies, people who have felt like frozen in fear, people who have been on the receiving end of physical or sexual abuse and trauma. Um, you tend to work with people who also want to uncover unconscious obstructions, which I would call blocks and barriers to love. Mm -hmm. um, people that who would not guess um, that um, that they're able to, how would I say this, would not guess that they were there, <laughs> but which are there, these, these obstructions that they don't even know are there, right? And that, <laughs> hello, I could be one of those people, but they are there. And you want to help influence people's ability to reach their full potential. Um, and also, and we're going to talk about this in a, in a little bit, but you also work with babies and babies who are still in the womb, which I find incredibly fascinating. So can you just kind of describe now the work that you do? And it might be really different. So I'm going to just leave this kind of an open-ended question and allow your own internal guidance to answer it however you see fit. But the kind of people that you tend to work with and the kind of people that you're trying to also call in and invite to work with you. Well, I would say the age span begins with uh, three months in utero, all the way up to those who are dying. Probably some of my most meaningful intuitive readings have been with those who are dying, who want to continue to heal and grow through the dying process. Mm. So age is not an issue at all. Um, I use my attention to do what I've had to do for myself. It, it's absolutely no different than what I've done when I've been in isolation. I had to go to places in my body that in my case stored profound terror. Now, fortunately, my clients don't fall into the same extreme category that I do, most of them. But it's the same process. I go to the tissue of the body. I'm not interested in giving them lots of information. Your father did this, your mother did this, and blah, blah, blah. no, 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 no. Your throat is very tight. I'm interested in going to what is the content in there that is very deep, that the client may feel a little bit, may not feel at all, or may feel but be paralyzed by it. My job is to take the power of intimacy or Knowing, I'm sorry, or feeling, or feeling and attention. That's love. I give my feeling to you. I give my attention to you. To take that power of love right into the cells of that person's body and to invite, therefore, the tissue to go, oh, I'm safe now. Someone's with me. I think I'll open up. I think I'll show you what's in there. Um, just to give you an example, a client of mine, years and years and years ago, she had never done anything like this in her life. She was a very well-known um, musician in the United States. And when I went in her body, I saw a gra grave spot, like where they dig a grave. And I saw um, a tiny baby at the bottom of the grave spot. And I, again, I have to piece things together sometimes. 
And I quickly said to myself, I think someone tried to abort her. And she then shared with me that she had never told anybody. She was born in the Deep South in the 30s. Abortion was not considered um, acceptable, to say the least. And she was. Her mother tried to abort her three times. Now, when you go to that content from the point of view of information, you can damage somebody. I want to be very clear. Information is not the basis of my work. If I went in and said, I see a, a baby at the bottom of a grave. This makes me think somebody tried to abort you. Do you think that's possible? I can damage her. I can damage her big time. Mm -hmm. So I have to always put intimacy ahead of information. Sure, I have a lot of information going in my head that I could spout off. That doesn't heal. As my beautiful husband says, information doesn't heal a damn thing. Intimacy heals. And what that means is I take my awareness into that tissue and I give that tissue a sense of you are not alone. Not because I'm any special person, but because I am meeting that tissue with the power of love to the best of my ability at that time. The tissue gets that sense of, oh, I'm safe. It opens up. It shows me lots of content. Then my second job, of course, is to convey that content in such a way that my client just slides right in there with me. If I convey that client content in a way that says, I got the goods on you, I really know what's going on, I, if I have one ounce of information-based superiority, I will do damage and my client won't heal. If I stay with my client and say, can you relate to this? Can you resonate with this? Can we go there together? Then the healing just happens. It's, it's remarkable. All we have to do is stay there together and bang, 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 bang. Just to give you an example, because I like, you know, I like your listeners to be able to have examples of this. I have worked with three women who wanted to conceive a child in the last year. This is just three women in the last year. There were others before then who were working very hard to conceive a child. Acupuncture, meditation, right diet, supplementation, all the things you would expect to hear from a woman who truly wanted to conceive and who was having trouble. When I went into all their bodies, all three of them said as clear as a bell, I do not want a baby. Okay, so... If I'm coming from information and I go, well, when I'm in your tissue, it says you don't want a baby. I'll do damage to that client. Sure. They will tighten up. When I say, when I'm deep in the tissue of the uterus, I feel this tightness. And when I go into this tightness, I feel this pulling back from life. And when I go into that pulling back, I hear the words, I don't want a baby. And then I stay right with that client. And every single time that client within five minutes has been able to say, it's true. And all three of them have children today. All three of them credit that process. Not me. It's not me. It's the power of intimacy. All three credit that process of going into that space of terror of life together and unraveling it, releasing it so that the body-mind wasn't pulling back unconsciously. And just to finish the story with one, we had a very, it, it, her refusal related to her own pre-birth experience. 
And when she found out she was pregnant, she went to tell her mother, who's a good human being, but has been traumatized herself. And her mother said to her, um, oh, that's great news that you're going to have a baby. Now, would you like spaghetti bolognese or lasagna for dinner? And my client came back, and we had a session, and she said, I saw it all, Marianne. I saw it all. My mother's never been able to actually connect with me as alive. She does everything for me. She's a kind, good person, but she can't, you know, do you want spaghetti bolognese or lasagna? Within 40 seconds of my client saying she had finally conceived a child. And my client saw it and saw this is what I'm coming out of. This is what I must keep doing. And we worked throughout the pregnancy because at various points along the pregnancy and right after birth, she said to me, I'm a stone. I don't feel anything. I'm a literal stone. I can't feel anything for this child. Mm-hmm. And I said, wonderful. That's music to my ears. Because if you're in touch with it, it's going to open up much more quickly than it is if I'm telling you you're a stone. She goes, I'm a stone. I'm holding in my hands, and it's like I'm holding a stone. So I celebrate that because this is a woman who 12 months or whatever, 10 months before, didn't even know it was stone-like in her body. It's so incredible. And I'm sure like there's like... (laughs) In my head, I was like, just be present for the story. But there were all these things that I was like, I want to make sure we touch on this. I think that one of the things that's so important, what you said, just to reiterate it, even though you said it twice, information doesn't heal. Intimacy, which means safety, trust, love, presence, presence, attention, this is what heals. And that is just like so, so, so powerful. And because what I do see a lot of people who mentor, coach, lead others is there is kind of this sometimes not so low grade information-based superiority and nothing can really happen there. Like, so, so that's really powerful. And then the other thing, just so people understand, because I remember when um, my friends were first talking um, about you to me, right? And I was like, so who is this lady? What does she do? And they're like, oh, she lives in Portugal. And then they would say, she goes into your tissues. And I'd be like, okay. <laughs> so I'm not stupid. So I'm like, so clearly this is happening long distance remotely, right? So can you just talk a little bit about that? Because so if anybody's listening, they're like, wait, is she in the room with them? What does she mean? What is going into their body? Because that sounds really intimate. What is going into their body and into the tissues? Like, you don't have to break down the whole process, but just explain to them, like, you're in Portugal, you work remotely, so it's either on the phone or via Zoom, like some, something like that, correct? That's correct. Yes. yes. Okay. And I do want to say about information and intimacy, the best compliment I've ever received was from a young man. Or maybe it was a woman. I can't even remember who said it to me. But whoever said it to me looked right at me and said very seriously, it was when I was seeing people in Australia, said, you could tell me that I'm a serial killer and I would be thrilled to hear it. <laughs> I thought, well, that says I'm doing my job, you know? Because what, she, what he or she meant, whoever it was, was saying, you make me feel safe enough to face things in myself that I may not want to hear. A hundred percent. You guys, I can vouch for that um, completely um, because, I, and I've said this, it, it, it really is a miracle that I can feel as safe as I feel with Marianne as, as quickly, as quickly as I did. 
um, because she creates, um, for lack of a better word, an environment, an emotional environment, a spiritual environment, a mental environment. And even though we're not in the same room, a physical environment. And I, you can just tell, like, I can just tell right away. I don't miss much. I'll say that about myself. Growing up the way that I did, I am hypervigilant about my surroundings and I don't miss much. And so I can usually tell when somebody has an agenda. I can tell when somebody is either emotionally or psychically trying to put hooks in me. And um, so with Mary Ann, it is just a generosity of, and, and I will say this, um, I mean, I cried so much the first time we were working together because I literally felt like, and I think my body even, like sometimes, you know, you can report back something that might be a, maybe a surprise to a client, like they didn't quite know. But in this thing, like I knew as you were reporting back to me, I already knew, like I felt my whole body just finally go, I'm not alone. Mm. I'm not alone. Like in, in, in some part of me was just like, finally, like I could just, oh, like somebody, and to have you report back to me things because I've often felt, um, you know, misunderstood in my life. I've often felt like I was experiencing things and seeing things from a way where maybe other people didn't get it or I couldn't explain it. And so to have somebody who could see me and hear me and reflect back to me, and it was just like, Oh my God, like what a relief, finally. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? <laughs> well, not only does it make sense, but to be honest, it affects me a lot emotionally because it was rough. I, I'm not going to pretend environmental illness is an easy experience. And if you're someone like me that you know, wanted to do something in the world, it was really hard. And I, and I did lose. I did lose you know, my 20s, my 30s. I didn't come back into the world in a big way until I was 47 years old. Now, I don't look back and feel, oh, I was cheated of life. No, quite the opposite. I've had a wonderful life. But to hear you say what you've said means all the times that I thought, I can't keep going. I just can't keep going. Put another mask on, uh, you know, stay away from this. Close the door so that doesn't get me. All the times I said, Marianne, you can do it. You can do it, Marianne. Keep going, keep going. It, it just makes me happy that I could keep going. So thank you. Well, I think that your resiliency, you know, um, your, I mean, I don't know, man, we could, we could, we could try to figure out, you know, w what it was that made you resilient. But I believe that you did have, because I remember you once saying to me, which just, I don't know, you guys, if you're listening and you can hear just even the quality and tone of Marianne's voice, and I don't mean sweet in this Pollyanna-ish way. There is a deep sweetness to you, which is one of the things that I, I love about you. But it's not, that's why whenever you, whenever you swear and use a curse word, like back to me, like when you're reflecting something back to me, it just makes me laugh so hard <laughs> yeah. because there is such a sweet, there's such a sweetness there, like, a, you know, a purity there. And so... I think that your divine assignment was not revealed to you until a little bit later in life. But I believe that your capacity for the deep sweetness and tenderness and mercy and grace, um, the safety that you're able to do it because of your own suffering. And I feel like you are marinating 
like in the experience so that when you when your time came now that there is nothing that you judge there is nothing that scares you oh, other no, people's nothing. pain doesn't scare you other people's bullshit and their stuff and their stories it doesn't scare you like i I, I'm not saying in any way that I'm like you, but I have a great capacity to hold space for other people's stuff, you know, and, um, and without judgment. And I think that that's one of the gifts of having those kinds of whatever you want to call it, trauma, situations, experiences, is you came out with this incredible capacity um, I, it, there's just a tenderness, uh, a tenderness, but it's it, like, but you're also, you're very direct. Like there's, I don't know how to explain it. It's this perfect blend. Like you are like the perfect uh, blend for me as somebody that I would be willing to learn from in That's order cool. for me to, and it's all, it kind of makes me sound a little bit like a dick, but I'm just being totally honest in order for me to, to surrender to somebody else and say, you help me. It means all my dukes have to come down. All my walls have to come down. And in order for me to do that, I have to respect you. I have to trust you. I have to believe that you have access or know stuff that I don't, right? So to be able to find somebody, and there has to be, because here's what I know to be true. As a kid who lost her mother violently um, at 12 years old, is that I did not have enough tenderness in my life that maternal kind of vibe of just like, so you bring a quality of tenderness that just kind of allows everything to like, just become available. So I, I hope you guys who are listening, like if you, if you recognize yourself in any of this, I cannot encourage you enough. And I'll, at the end of this, we'll talk about how to reach Marianne and how to, um, you know, set up if, if, if you want to try and see if you're able to work together and stuff like that. I'm going to make all of that available. But you I know, think... I, I didn't answer your question. And I yes, do sorry, go ahead. In a nutshell, how do I do it? Um, if we adopt the idea that everything is energy rather than everything is matter, if we adopt that idea, it means even though you're in New Hampshire and I'm in Portugal, we're absolutely connected. Absolutely connected. So we operate on that principle. Distance, it means nothing. It means nothing. Intuition, I just want to make sure the listeners understand that because it's a word used a lot, but what actually is it? It's the capacity to know something through feeling it not know it through thinking it. It's that simple. If you walk in a room and somebody says, do you have that person over there? You can think, oh, well, I heard he had to go to the dentist today, so he probably doesn't feel that good. And actually, I see his face is a bit swollen, so he probably had blah, blah, blah. That's thinking knowing. If somebody says, how's that person over there? I don't feel they're that good. I don't know what's the matter with them, but I, I just feel they're not good. Feeling knowing. So all I do is use that capacity of knowing through feeling to know what's going on with my client. And the only difference is instead of just picking up, oh, I guess the person isn't feeling that good today, or I guess maybe they're lonely, I'm going quite a bit deeper. I'm going to places that are tight in their body. And I'm saying basically, hello, you're not alone. Somebody is with you. So can you please open up and show us what's in there? And just so the listeners know, when we've been wounded, and it doesn't release, 
we tend to lock it in. If we've been traumatized, which means overwhelmed, frightened for our sanity and frightened for our lives, we absolutely lock it in. Mm -hmm. So we can be walking around with um, a pain that's been in the body for 30, 40 years. And if we were traumatized, and of course we don't remember trauma, every single detail of it we don't, um, that content may be lost. The person may literally not know that they're walking around terrified. Just as the women who said to me, I don't want a baby. They didn't know that they were so terrified of life that the prospect of a baby inside them was overwhelmingly frightening. So my job is to very gently go in, because we are connected anyway, mm -hmm. go right through the intuition, through feeling, knowing, I feel it, I feel it, I feel it, I feel it, I feel it. And then my job is with heart, with heart, to convey it to my clients such that she basically jumps in there with me. Yeah, and let's, let's dive into that a little bit because when you said a lot of the trauma that happens, we might not even remember it. Now, some of that is because some of it, like in my case, as you, we've, we've discussed, um, is that it was pre-verbal. And some of it, because I know part of your passion, and one of the things I wanted to ask you is, you know, with the time that you have left, like what do you want to accomplish in your life? And I know that one of the things you really want to do is to work with babies, especially like, no, I shouldn't say especially, but also like babies in utero. So kind of along this line of what you're talking about is sometimes trauma happens, quote unquote trauma, the overwhelm happens when we're pre-verbal, so we can't even talk about it. And then also when we're in the womb. So for, for some of my, um, you know, female, um, listeners who might either be pregnant, want to become pregnant, or want to discover their own, like kind of what happened, like why, why am I processing life this way and experiencing me this way? Can you talk a little bit about that in the womb stuff? Yeah, I mean, uh, we know, this is not Marianne's theory, we know that many people come into life already disconnected from their bodies. It's known in I'm raising my hands for those of you at home. Yeah, you too, Marianne. <laughs> the medical term for it used in the 50s was schizoid. Schizoid is Latin for split. Just means attention's up here, body's down here. The person looks and acts normal. They don't look like they're split. But if you get inside them, they do not feel themselves moving and walking and talking. They're directing it all from their will. I will walk. I will talk. I will but they're not fluidly feeling their body as they do anything. Now, there are degrees of that. Some are very severe, like me. Some are less severe. So that pattern in the 50s was called schizoid, but people, therapists today writing about it knew that people would kind of freak out hearing schizoid because they would think that it's schizophrenia. And in a sense, it, it is on the continuum of schizophrenia. And schizophrenia, you're completely disconnected from the body. You think you're Christine when you're Martha. Okay. <laughs> well, that was my first client in social work school. I can remember it so vividly. It was in social work school. And they, you know, I have to go for this, you know, in, you know, internship. And they said, here's your first client. She's nine years old. Her name is Martha, but she thinks she's Christine. And I remember thinking to myself, what the hell am I supposed to call her? I mean, I was only 22 years old. Sure, <laughs> they sure. hand me this schizophrenic nine-year-old girl. I think that was a bit 
off the deep end. You know what I mean? <laughs> I do. I do know what you mean. They could have handed me somebody who said that her confidence was low, but I get this child who doesn't even know who she is. And, oh, Lord. Anyway, um, so, so it is on the continuum, but schizoid people are not schizophrenic. But they recognize that the word scared the hell out of everybody. So now the new very <laughs> word that everybody's comfortable with is the leaving pattern. Yes. We left our bodies and we split off attentions over here and the body is walking and talking but there isn't <laughs> a fluid connection so when i meet a client who's like this and i'd say 40 percent of my clients are like this it's a very common pattern today um, there are many reasons outside the scope of this call i think to consider but there are many reasons why people become like this um, but when i meet someone like this my job is to help them begin to understand that they are um, functioning in life as lights on, no one home. Some of my clients get it like that. Yep, I know. I love that phrase because I can feel myself in moments talking more, but I'm not there. Mm -hmm. So lights on, no one home. Some of my clients gravitate right away. The second one is the director's chair. Some clients say right away, yep, I feel myself in a director's chair you know, watching my life on a screen. Mm -hmm. And the third one, which is my husband's written two books about the frozen person, and he talks about it as a freeze, that the person is frozen. And indeed, now we know there are three stress responses. Up until the last oh, 20 years, we had fight or flight. Yeah. Now we have fight, flight, or freeze. Yes. Yes, we've talked about this at length. <laughs> yeah, and you see, yeah. in utero, the child can't run. The child cannot fight. They can't because they're dependent on that umbilical cord. They're dependent on that energy to survive. So they freeze. Yes. They tighten up and they basically say, I'm out of here. And they will not remember that trauma unless someone, more than likely, they won't remember that trauma unless someone assists them and stays right with them because it is, um, you know, I have to be honest, it's stark terror. Yes. Yes. And, and there's a lot and it's, and it's individual, right? There's a lot of different reasons why something like that might happen in utero. And Absolutely. Very, very different. I have a client right now. I've worked with her for many years. Her, her father was uh, violent to her mother during the pregnancy. What we, what we can say this, we can say this, it's either one major shock in utero or it's multiple shocks. Now, keep in mind, this is very important because you'd think shock means some bad, really obvious thing like domestic violence. No, it can be um, very, very subtle where the mother, just like the mom who talked about lasagna and spaghetti bolognese, she just can't be there. Yes. She just can't be there. Her own body is yes. too tight to let anything go through. So you. it's not, a, it's still a shock. It's still a shock for the baby in utero, but it's not the kind of shock as I just described for my client whose father was hitting the mother all the time. Yeah, I mean, it's so, I mean, you guys, you can, if you're listening, I know, like, I'm like, I'm like, we've been talking for like 95 minutes because we could go on and on because it is so fascinating. It is so fascinating, but more, more importantly, more importantly, the work that you do, I just already know it is, it is so um, 
powerful and it is so helpful. And for me, it's revolutionary. I've never met, look, I've been in the spiritual, quote unquote, the spiritual business or the spiritual game or the spiritual, like whatever you want to call it for a really long time, over half of my life. And I've never met this deck. You're, you're, you're an original, Marianne. I've never met anybody who does the work that you do in quite the way um, that, that you do it. And, um, and to me, it's just when I, when I talk about we all have our own individual curriculum and we all have our own divine assignment, uh, I believe it's true, but I don't think, I always say uh, God calls everybody, but not, every, not everybody picks up the phone, right? Not everybody answers. And so I believe that you have, like, you're one of these people who has fully, um, even if in the beginning you're like, what the hell am I doing and who am I to be doing this? I think a lot of people feel that way, that they, they, they know they're, they're, they're like called to do something. And in the beginning, we're just like, what? Like, I don't know what to do. Like, if you would have told me, me, that I was going to be a yoga teacher and then a spiritual mentor, I would have been like, are you high? Like, what are you so <laughs> Never, ever, ever. But I know that I've always had a desire to be helpful. But I think you have fully embraced and answered and your courage in saying yes, like even just you saying yes to this work that you do and doing it in the way that you do it, you're helping so many other people to heal. So it's such an exponential effect. Like we talked about it like, you know, a spider web the other day. And I feel like it is. And I, I am just so happy uh, and selfishly because I get the benefit <laughs> of you saying yes to this work. So I just want to acknowledge that, like that, that I, I love that. And if so people, if you're listening and you recognize yourself in any of this, again, I just want to encourage you. Um, you know, Can I, I, I can't, I can't finish this podcast without Oh, we're not finishing. I was just, I was just reiterating again. So please, I, I, just have to, I just have to give a plug to my husband. The readers need to know, the listeners need to know, I could never have done this without his walking into that bubble and just ignoring everything. And believe me, there was a lot to ignore and just saying, I want to be with you and sticking by my side for 41 years when I've almost died so many times. I just have to acknowledge the, um, yes, I may have answered the call. Yes, I've been, you know, determined to get well, etc. But um, love is the healer. He, he, he was the one who transcended so much to be with me all those years and had to sacrifice so much. And I just have to let the listeners know that I couldn't have done it without his help. Well, and that's part of like what your your book is about is about that amazing love story and 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 the the power of of love to heal and how it healed you and it continues now to exponentially go out into the world and, and heal others. And um, I was lucky enough to catch a glimpse of Corey this morning <laughs> on the video, and he, in his own right, is a really powerful healer. And um, oh, yes. he's retired now. He's also a musician, but he's retired now. But I mean, what a, what a beautiful gift that your paths cross and what a remarkable soul, like what a remarkable spirit, right? Because I'm sure, like this is the whole thing. I just know, like I'm one of those people who have very practical questions, right? Like, so you're in a room, three chairs. <clears throat> how does this person have a love life and relationship and intimacy? Like how does a marriage happen in that container, right? So I'm sure people... Are wondering and so you saying that like he had to I mean just to say your words he had to sacrifice and whatever 
but oh. you guys made it happen. Like it's, it, it, I shouldn't even say made it happen. You guys, it happened and love wins the day, you know? Oh, it did. And there were times where we were both falling all over each other with exhaustion. We couldn't, oh, I can't tell you one time we had to move 22 times in a year. And oh my God, I, I can't describe to you what we were up against. And, uh, but I just tell one humorous story because you asked, how did I have a love life? Well, it was impossible to have a love life because I was <laughs> sitting on a chair. I mean, I suppose if you're some kind of acrobat, you can have some kind of love life. <laughs> Of course, I you know I can't have anybody too near me. So unless it's going to be some spiritual acrobatic thing, you know. Fantastic. <laughs> what happened is my doctor was um, a very devout, um, a very devout person, and you know she's just very devout. So you, it, she's not the kind of doctor you would talk about sex to. That let me just put it that way. She yes. Just really, oh yeah, you can be totally honest on this show. Yes. She just wasn't the type of person. She had never married and she lived with three other women, two of whom were nuns. So it's not like you could go in and, you know, say, "Hey, how am I going to have sex with this condition?" So <laughs> I so I never asked the question, obviously. One, one day her nurse called me up and her nurse was quite a bit older than I and she said um Marianne we have an all cotton 25 year old mattress that was never treated with chemicals and we wonder if you would be interested in it because then you could lie on a bed oh my gosh well, I must drop the phone I was so excited and she and she said but we don't think you'll tolerate it right now we do think we have to air it out for a month or two you know everything had to be aired out miracle they didn't have to air me out you know everything <laughs> aired out all the time how long are we airing it out should we air it out you know everything i swear to god you know my poor husband had to practically air me out sometimes <laughs> let's just put you outside and see if you can tolerate yourself in an hour. Anyway, are you okay with our airing out oh yes beatrice that would be wonderful i would love it i would love it so one day you know we couldn't have sex but we were in love we were absolutely in love and uh so oh. She called me and she said, I have some wonderful news. We've aired out the mattress. <laughs> of course, I couldn't tell her why I was so excited. I said, oh, that would be wonderful. I said, could you bring it over soon, like today or something? And she oh said, not today, but on the weekend, my husband will bring it over to you. So um, it came and uh, I lay on it. And that's, that's the big thing, you know. Will I have pain or won't I have pain? And you usually get your answer within two minutes. If you don't have pain in two minutes, you can pretty much count on the fact that you'll tolerate it. But if you've got two, pain in two minutes, you have to go, oh, well. Oh, my God, yeah. So um, I lay on it for two minutes, and I had no pain. And then I said, okay, how long do I need to be able to lie on it to have sex? <laughs> I said, I think 20 minutes will pull it off. <laughs> I said, all right. I had a little clock in my room, metal. I was allowed this metal clock. I set, I watched the clock and I said to myself, you only have to last 18 more minutes. You can do it. You can do it. You can do it. So I, I watched the clock, no pain. I got up, I ran to, I didn't ran. I, I, put my, I can't ran, run anywhere. What do I say? I ran. There's nowhere to run. I went to the bedroom door, put my hand outside, picked up the wooden phone, called Corey. This is long before mobile phones. Called him, and I said, um, "I got the mattress, and I and I laid on it. I laid on it." <laughs> oh, Mary! Never forget as long as I live. He said, "How long?" <laughs> and I said, "Long enough." This story is pure gold. Come right now. I think he 
went through every damn red light in Ann Arbor. He was there in like three minutes. <laughs> and I said, never let Paula, that was my doctor, I said, never tell Paula this whole thing. I mean, she thinks it's just for me to be able to have a good sleep at night. I said, don't tell her all this. <laughs> oh my God, Marianne, that story is pure gold. That is so beautiful. And it just, and it's hysterical and it encapsulates humanity and the divinity <laughs> it's so good and thank you for sharing such you're a welcome you're welcome yeah I'll, I'll never forget when he said how long i said long enough <laughs> yeah all right so i would love for you because i know people are going to be really curious if you could tell one story about working with because i think it's just fascinating too and i know i'm sure people want to hear about it um can you talk about a story about um maybe how you have worked with a child in utero and kind of what that's like? Oh, there are so many and they're very moving. Uh, let's see, which one? Oh, I have a, a very delightful one and a very- Well, you can tell two. I'm not, you know, so just pick- Okay, you will see if we have time. I'll tell the intense one first because it's so moving and it just really shows you what, <laughs> how sentient these beings are, even though, see, your readers, I just, listeners so i want to make sure they understand before the 80s it was presumed that a baby even after birth did not feel routine operations were done very simple operations were done without anesthetic it was presumed there was no feeling because the brain hadn't developed now thank god we understand the baby is highly sentient at birth and highly sentient or feeling in the womb they can feel just about anything mm -hmm. however we want to remind everybody that it depends on the sensitivity of the child some of them are i swear are like sumo wrestlers you'll hear it in a minute when i tell the story no matter what you do to them they bounce back some are like delicate little flowers just a loud voice causes them to tighten. Okay, so this one is an intense story because the baby was dying. Um, I got a call from a midwife. She said that the obstetrician and the midwife on the case, I guess you'd say, asked me to ask the child why the child wasn't dying soon enough. Let me backtrack. The child had a very serious illness. The child was dying. The child should have died at five months. It was seven months. Every day that it went on was jeopardizing the mother's health a little more. Basically, the baby needed to die. So the request for me is, will you talk to the baby and find out why the baby's not dying? Okay. The mother called me up. She didn't say much. She didn't sound emotionally upset at all. She sounded like she was just about to um, order groceries on the phone. It was no emotion whatsoever. So I went in, she sounded to me like very collected, like she was coping well, at peace. Well, I went in the body, the baby is screaming, yelling, yelling is the right word. She doesn't listen to me, she doesn't listen to me. I've been trying to tell her she won't listen to me. Um, she lives in a state of anxiety. She runs around. She never finishes anything. She starts. She has no idea why she's on this earth. She's not fulfilling her purpose on the earth. She's just running around, running around, running around. Just anxiety, just screaming this. Now, keep in mind, I'm talking to a woman that's talking to me like, hello, Marianne. Yes, I'm ready for the reading. No sign. I mean, if I had a child dying, I'd be crying. At nothing at all. 
So I thought, oh my Lord, I don't know how she's gonna handle this. She might say, this is crazy and hang up on me. But I knew, I, I know I've done enough readings. I never doubt myself. I knew what this baby was saying was the truth. And I just had to pray the mother would listen to her child. It's not about me. It's about the mother listening to her child. So I said it all, again, intimacy is the healer. I'm not going to blurt it all out. I just said step by step, the baby seems to be saying that. She feels that. The baby's name was Phoebe. And uh, so I said it all, but very succinctly, just, just enough so she could get the whole gist of it, but not so much that she would feel like it's too much to handle. And she was dead silent. She didn't say a word for at least two minutes. Now that means it could go either way. Either she's going to say it's bullshit and hang right, up, right. and say I don't want to work with you, or she's going to say it's true. And I was praying. I was just—I knew it was true. I knew it was. I was just praying she'd meet me there, or really meet Phoebe. It's not so much me as I said. So the two minutes were over. She took a deep breath. I could hear it. You know when somebody goes. <sighs> And then the first sentence told me we were okay. She said, I am a master of illusion. Mm. Mm. The minute I heard it, I said, oh, thank God. Everything's okay. Mm -hmm. She said her words were perfectly chosen, not one extra word. I can remember to this day because it was so succinct. I live in a state of constant inner anxiety and turmoil. Mm -hmm. I never finish anything I start. I do not believe in myself. I have no idea what my purpose on this earth is. My baby is absolutely correct. So I was smart enough, you know, you, you learn when you do this work, when to keep someone on the phone. I, I knew, Marianne, get off the phone as politely as you can get out of here. This is for her and Phoebe, not me. Mm -hmm. So I said, do you mind if I say goodbye now? She said, again, not many words. She said, no, that's good. I said, so I'm going to say goodbye so you can be with Phoebe. Oh, I feel so emotional right now just hearing that. Yeah, that's powerful. And then I got the call that Phoebe had died about five hours later. Mm. Then she wrote me about, um, I'd say six weeks later, maybe a month, six weeks, can't remember. And again, she's not a woman. She's not like me. She's not talkative. She's a woman of few words, just was hello, Marianne, or dear Marianne. Uh, but I'll never forget it. She said, I want you to know that my baby's life was not wasted. Oof. Everything that Phoebe said to me, I have taken into account. I've made major changes in my life. And I feel I am now fulfilling my purpose on earth. That's huge. Yeah. That's really big. So the scientific materialistic view that tells us unless it's matter, it's not real. Oh my God, no. I mean, this baby technically, okay, it's matter, but it's not even on the earth. And look at the sentience. Look at the feeling knowing of this mother. Well, they are within the mother. Like I think to myself, like if anybody has a pretty good 
um, you know, systems check kind yeah. of knows what's happening in the environment. It's the thing within the environment, right? So absolutely. It's, it's but it wasn't until the eighties that it was even understood that they could feel anything. It was like, oh, oh well, no, their brain isn't developed. They don't know anything. That is absolutely not true. I yeah, I mean it's. <laughs> <laughs> It's so interesting, you know, um, last week, or I'm not sure when this one's going to air, but I had a conversation with, um, with um, one of my beautiful friends who is a dog expert and how you have gifts, I would say, uh, and I know, I know you are a dog lover and you have gifts with animals too. But so she, she is like, I would say an animal communicator, right? Oh, she, she's wonderful. a dog trainer, quote unquote, oh. dog expert, but she just gets it. And she said this beautiful quote, it just made me think of what you shared. And she said, if you want opinions about dogs, talk to people. If you want to know what's really going on with dogs, talk to dogs. Oh, marvelous. And so that's what I'm, I'm feeling in this moment. I'm thinking like, yeah, you go right to the source, right? Like right to the heartbeat of like, hey, what's happening in there? report back. And I just know because you, we've talked about, um, you know, my kind of in utero experience too. And it just makes so much sense to me now. I'm like, oh my God, it makes so much sense why I am the way that I am and how I've come to be, you know, it's just so incredible. And I know, look, I've already heard a bunch of your stories, so I'm not going to pick the one that I want you to share, but um, I know you have uh, other stories about um, children in utero. Is there another one you'd like to share? Maybe you're thinking about um, Phoenix. Well, so Phoenix is definitely one of them, yes. <laughs> uh, well, Phoenix, because it ends on a very happy note. Um, Phoenix, Phoenix's mother called me when she was seven months pregnant, and she told me a story that everybody's mouth drops when they hear, but it is the truth. She was doing the at-home pregnancy test in her home. It registered that she was pregnant. She went out to tell her partner and she tripped over him because he had committed suicide five minutes before. So as she was checking, and he didn't know that, he had no idea, he committed suicide. So I, as I said when I tell this story, it was the first time I've ever been nervous doing a reading. Because technically, what we know of that situation, the baby should be quite traumatized. It should be. Because there's an immediate shock. To the mother. Following following the mother's body a dreadful shock following the second she knew she was pregnant so that baby technically and then as the mother said she didn't mince any words she said for seven months i've been a complete basket case one minute i hate him one minute i want to kill him even though he's already dead i mean she just let it out she said one minute i'm crying my eyes out one minute i'm feeling guilty that i was not a good enough partner one minute i'm feeling like why didn't i get him help the next minute i'm hating him again i mean it was she just said i'm a mess what can i tell you and so I thought, this child, I mean, we know what we know. Repeated shocks cause the baby to become traumatized. I thought, this baby's going to be a wreck. And I was like, oh, my God, what are we going to do? We have only two months. We've got to get this baby back in her body. So I go in the body, at the baby's body, and the mother's body, and there's this baby. She has a big, round face. She has bangs down to here. Her hair is cut like one of those bowl cuts, huge round face, very, very stocky. She looked like three years old, just stocky, strong. And she's looking at me like, hi, what's the big deal? And my brain is going, this is not possible. This is not possible. Think of everything you've studied, you know, in social work school about trauma. This is not possible. And she's like this going, what's the problem? I'm like, oh my God. 
So then, of course, I think the mother's going to think this is not possible. She's going to think I'm making this up. And I said to her, I am swear to you, I know trauma. This is not a traumatized child. And she said, well, I have something to tell you. And I said, oh, no, maybe she, maybe she made up the story. I don't know. She said, okay, as crazy as I was for the last seven months, I always felt she was fine. But I couldn't believe it. Because like me, she said, how is it, how's it possible that the baby's crying? fine. She said, but I believed she was. And I said, I am swearing to you. She's like a phoenix rising out of the ashes. She's just here. Like, hello, mom, let's start this journey. So the baby was born at home. She was happy, just happy baby, no problems. And the mother said, I'm going to name her Phoenix in honor of that reading, mm. which was wonderful. And then I just got a photo about six months ago. She's about four now. I swear to you, I just love it. There she is with the round face, the bangs, her hair is cut exactly like I saw it, and she has two little boy friends around her, but they're seated underneath her, so her arms around them, like she looks like a queen, and she's like, you know, she's not, she's just happy and strong in herself, and the mother reports to me, she's never had a sad day in her life. Now, how can we explain that? Well, I don't have all the answers, but I can say this, that she came in with a remarkable sense of resilience. Mm. She probably came in to spare that mother almost going off the deep end. Mm. Because the one thing the mother said that got her out of bed, got her eating right, got her doing you know the basics during the pregnancy was that she was pregnant. Otherwise, she said she felt like she just wouldn't get out of bed. She was so shaken. Yes. Yeah. The Phoenix had a mission and Phoenix was fulfilling it. <laughs> yeah, Phoenix. <laughs> All right. And I have to say I, I wish I, I I wish I had gotten some of Phoenix resilience genes. Man, is she tough. Oh my God. Well, you know what, Marianne? If you had if you would come through that way, we would not now have <laughs> yeah. I mean, I kind of think about that, like, oh, I'm so happy I had all this suffering so I could help other people, right? But it's true, like, I, I think about that too, like all the stuff, and, and it's why, like, even, you know, even though, quote unquote, I'm a spiritual mentor, there's always so much to still learn about myself because it's through myself and my own healing and understanding that I'm better able to help others. And so through your willingness to do that work, and it's why I continue to do work on myself. I'm like, look, I am a lifelong project. I know that. Like there's, you know, and I know, like I have a very clear sense. I always say like who we are as spirit is already perfect. It, my, my spirit self is not traumatized. It's perfectly whole and holy. It's all great. It's the ego body and personality that I always say needs a little adjusting and work, Absolutely. right? And Absolutely. So, and thank God we have each other. Thank God we have people with different skill sets, whether it's somatic therapists or yoga people or acupuncturists or spiritual mentors or healers. Like, like thank God we all come through with these different um, abilities to help one another. And your gift is just so amazing. And I, I just have to end it because it's only because it's been two hours and I want to make sure people will listen to the episode. They'll be like three hours. I can't. I don't have that time. So, um, so, and, and maybe I'll have you on again at a later time to do some more sharing of the stories. But so you guys, I just want you um, to remember a couple of things. So be on the lookout and I'll let you guys know for sure, like out on social media, 
not only when this episode is coming out, but when Marianne's um, book, Love is the Healer, is going to be coming out. I'll also give you opportunities to, to, you know, her email address, all that stuff, how you can get in touch with her. But Marianne, why don't you just tell people, first of all, if there's any final words that you'd like to say, I want to give you an opportunity. If there's something I didn't ask you that you want to make sure to talk about, to go ahead and do that. And then also let the listeners know um, how to uh, connect with you. Well, I'd say thank you uh, because it's extremely validating for me. Uh, as I said, I came in with a desire to do something important and, you know, go to Africa. And I don't know what I had in mind when I said medical missionary, but clearly I wanted to do something. And when I was hit by the car, that was all taken away for two and a half decades. And so naturally in my quiet moments, I feel, oh, I wish I had had a chance to you know, really have a career and do things for the world. And uh, yeah, yes, there's a tear in my eye when I say that. I, I wish I, I wish, you know, maybe it had been different. On the other hand, I'm extremely grateful. But what I want to say is it's extremely validating for me to hear you say that I do help people and that I have given something back to the world. It's, it, it helps me feel, yes, Marianne, you know, it, it may have looked like you lost 25 years, but you didn't. And, and you learned through that experience, and that was good. So thank you. It's extremely validating for me. I love hearing from people. I'm a Sagittarian. I, it's, I, I love animals too, obviously, being a Sag. But I, I love hearing people's story. And uh, we were laughing, Karen, before we start. I have a young client in Sydney. He's very young. He's about 18 or 19. And he wrote me this long story of what happened over the weekend. It was very upsetting to him. And he wrote, well, Marianne, I guess you must get a truckload every day. I guess that's the way the young people talk now, truckload. And I just cracked up. I was laughing my head off. And I said to my husband, but you know what? I said, Corey, I really like the truckloads. Mm -hmm. I, I like hearing people's stories. I like it. And I like feeling, hmm, now if we did this, and if we did this, and if they figured that out, then maybe this. And I like it. It's very exciting to me to see people um, have the tools that they should have gotten in elementary school. If I had, could change one thing, I'd say bring healing into elementary schools. And But that's another story. Um, but I, I love empowering people with skills that they can use the rest of their lives. My readings are not about me saying all this stuff. I, I'm most happy when my client finishes and says, you've taught me how I can help myself. Amen. Amen. That is what I want. So, um, yes, I love hearing from people. I am very careful to make sure I help agree to readings only with people I can help. Yeah, we, I mean, we did, we went through that back and forth in the beginning, remember, when we were trying to decide if this was a good fit. And I 100% agree. I think it's one of the reasons why, like, it's so funny when people have, um, you know, a few people I've shared with that I'm working with you. And they said, well, how did you two come to work together? And I said, well, funny story. We almost didn't work together. I go, because she, like me, is picky. And I say picky in a good way, meaning yes. you will not. I'm like, I don't want to take your money That's if right. I don't feel like I can help you. If I feel like you're going to resist or you're not ready, whatever the story, whatever the situation is, I'm not interested in 
working with people I don't believe I can help, number one. And then number two, I don't want to create codependent relationships. I always say, my goal is to get you to a place where you recognize ultimately that you don't need me anymore, right? And I'm like, I'm like I'll hold your hand until you're ready to take a much greater hand. That's how I kind of talk about it. So that was one of the things that um, allowed me to actually trust you more right away too, was that I was like, oh, she's not in this just to like, get money. Like she is not going to work with me unless she really feels like she can be helpful. So I actually appreciate that you have a process where you are very upfront about that. Yeah. They, I need the client to tell me what, what needs healing? What do you want to accomplish? Then I need my quiet time to assess, can I really help this person? If not, I usually give one or two suggestions of things that I know, modalities or people that might be able to help. And to be honest, it's exactly what you said. I want it win-win. If that client's going to extend money to me, I want that client going away saying, Mary Ann C. helped me. Yes, 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 yes. Because that is not always the case, Mary Ann. And I appreciate and it that. It takes time. It takes time. I've just done three recordings for clients who are interested saying, this is how I'd help think about it and make sure it's right. You know, it does take time for me to do that. But, oh, my God, I wouldn't do it any other way. Because when the client gets on the phone with me, we're excited. We're like, yeah, she knows what I want. She says she can help. Let's jump in together. Yeah. And I so appreciate, <clears throat> I, I kind of jokingly, I'm like, oh, Marianne's not getting rid of me. I'm like, I, I love, <laughs> I, well, no, I mean, because I think that, you know, also, it's one of these things, and I wish we had more time so I could have you answer this question, but I imagine it's like, you know, it took all these years to like be this way. So there's an unraveling, like there's an undoing. And I think sometimes I'm sure, and you can please correct me if I'm wrong. I'm sure some things take longer than sometimes when there's a readiness, healing can happen like that. Absolutely. But there are probably some patterns and conditioning. It takes a little bit of time. So I'm happy to be continuing my work with you. And, I, and I'm so excited because um, you're also helping me to do, I think, the greatest work that I, I believe I came here to do, which is to write books and tell stories. And you're helping me actually um, get my book done in your own unique way. Not, it's not like she's giving me writing advice and stuff no. like that, but, but the, this work I think is going to um, exponentially impact. And I think that's the thing is that when you said, you know, you validate me that my life wasn't, you know, wasted or I, you know, had all these years where, because you're, you're going to be a piece. Like there's a part of you that in all your clients, whether yeah. it's in their children or their creative. Yes. Thank you. Thank that, you. That Thank you. This all goes out, man. So it's, it's so cool. So how can people get in touch with you if they're interested? They can just go to Marianne C. That's M-A-R-Y-A-N-N-E. -N -N -E. My last name is S-E-A, just like the ocean. And uh, on that website, there'll be contact. You'll see my email right there. Perfect. Perfect, you guys. And Marianne, just thank you so much. I'm so, let me also say a shout out to my friend Meg and the other friends who also work with you who were like, oh my God, you know Marianne too? And I'm like, yeah. So we have a little fan club here, just so you know. You. We adore you so much. And, um, and just thank you so much for taking so much time out of your day to be on the, on the Karen Kenny show. It has been a total delight and a pleasure for me. And I am sure for my listeners too.
It was an absolute pleasure. I, I could have talked five more hours, as I'm sure you could see. <laughs> we'll have to have you back on, because I know they'll be like, give us more. So we'll get this first one out into the world, and then maybe we'll have you back on when your book comes out. Oh, that would be lovely. So I just want to say thank you to the listeners. I really mean that. Thank you for listening to my story, for validating me by listening to me, and uh, and to you, Karen, for being a shining example of what human growth and transcendence can be, a shining example to us all. Oh, you're just making me want to cry. All right, I'm going to hang out before the okay. that. Hold on. So, all right. And you guys, thank you so much. And as I always say, I see you. I celebrate you. I love you. Wherever you go, may you be a blessing. Hey, you guys, thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the Karen Kenny Show. <laughs> I super duper appreciate your time, friendship, and support. And look, if something that I shared from my heart today somehow landed in yours, I'd love to hear about it. So please tag me on Facebook or Instagram or IG stories or wherever the cool kids are hanging out these days. And let me know what your favorite pot was or what you found most helpful. You can find me over at Karen Kenny Live. That's Karen, K-E-N-N-E-Y-L-I-V-E. And if you're digging what I'm saying and you want to hear more, I'd be wicked grateful if you could go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review because you guys, that's how you'll help me to keep spreading the love. And if you can think of someone that could benefit from hearing this episode, please share it with them. I'd also love to stay connected with you. So if the feeling is mutual, please go to karenkenny.com backslash freebie and download my free guide to building your spiritual team. Until next time, my brothers and sisters, keep living in the fearless flow. Know that I see you, I appreciate you, and I love you. And wherever you go, may you be a blessing.